This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Martin Smith. I'm from the School of Public Health at Berkeley. Um, I love this earlier session. The use of the word exposome, exposome, exposome so many times was great. Uh, when Steve Rappaport and I sat around in um, Cafe Strada in Berkeley dreaming uh, of this day, really, um, where we talked about the exposome and using Chris Wiles' words and concepts um, to understand how the environment it works with genetics to impact health. And um, so in this next session, we're going to hear about how chemicals may affect um, our weight and our obesity. And the first speaker is Bruce Blumberg from the uh, University of California of Irvine, where she, he is a professor of developmental and cell biology. He's also the author of The Obesogens Effect, which is a book you can see outside. And he's going to talk about the obesogens, what we need to know. Thank you, Bruce. So thanks very much, Martin, and thanks very much to Alyssa and Tracy and all the organizers for the privilege to come and talk here. So the main messages I want to convey to you today are that there are such things as obesogens and that they may have a role in this worldwide obesity pandemic that we face. We can't call it an epidemic anymore. It's a pandemic. It's worldwide. These chemicals are abundant in our diet and environment. We're, we, we, we're just surrounded by them. It's very difficult to avoid totally. I'll show you some data from our lab that says obesogen exposure modifies the response to diet, which is what we all face. And that the effects of this early life exposure, especially prenatal exposure, can be transmitted to future generations. And I show a picture up here. So in genetic terms, if the, the, the woman on the left is F0 generation, her daughter is F1, her granddaughter is F2, her great-grandson there is F3, and we're going to talk about the next generation, the great-great-grandchildren. So these effects can be passed very far down the lineage. So we know that the, the, this pandemic is, is, is quite widespread. You've heard about that already. 40% of U.S. adults are obese, and that falls disproportionately in the minority communities. It's almost 50% on average, and in African-American and Hispanic women, it's more than 50%. And I was just in Raleigh, North Carolina yesterday, and I only saw a very, very few African-American women who were not obese, and that was pretty shocking. And it's not good for, for, for them. Obesity is responsible for a large amount of healthcare costs. The last number that I saw was around 210 billion, and often at, at UC campuses I'll joke about how many assistant vice chancellors we could hire with $210 billion. That's, that's a lot of money that costs come from increased in healthcare costs associated with metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, a whole host of, of effects. And of course, we all know how we get obese, right? It's a simple problem. It's a solved problem. It's all about positive energy balance. And if you go to the NIDDK website, you'll see that, that obesity is a reflection of positive energy balance. And this is the prevailing medical view of obesity. This, we're all people who eat too much and exercise too little. Of course, it's more than that. The number of calories are important, but also the quality of the calories, the, the, the nature of the calories that we eat. And that's really important as you approach caloric sufficiency. If you give people 1,000 calories less than they need, it doesn't matter whether it's Twinkies, steak, uh, fava beans, whatever it is, they're going to lose a lot of weight. If 
But as you approach caloric sufficiency, then it makes a very big difference what those calories are. There's some effect of, of exercise, but it's counterintuitive. If you just add exercise to someone's lifestyle, they tend to gain weight, not lose it. And they don't gain muscle weight, they gain fat weight. There's some amount of genetics involved, but it's a relatively small fraction of, the, of obesity can be explained by genes. And there's some very good recent data about the environment. And you've already heard some indications that the environment has an effect on obesity. Uh, David Allison and his colleagues showed that animals are getting obese in parallel with humans. And that's animals like our cats and dogs, but also rats living in cities, and the animals in our research colonies, five different species of animals. So you can argue that I overfeed my cat, and I probably do, but we don't overfeed our, our rats and mice and, and, and monkeys. Something else is going on there. And there's also a very important study that showed that even when you normalize for caloric intake and exercise, people in 2006 were 2.3 BMI points higher than they were in 1988. So it's much more than just calories in, calories out. You heard about stress and the role of stress in obesity, uh, disrupted circadian rhythms by shift work at night. You know about the microbiome. You have one of the, the, the great microbiome researchers here at UCSF. You also heard about the developmental origins of disease. And there is this idea that the prenatal experience programs the rest of your life, and that if you're undernourished or overnourished as a fetus, you will get obese later in life. Yeah, there's a strong predisposition to that. And is there a role for chemicals? Well, there was some evidence, and probably the best paper came in 2003 when Jerry Heindel linked endocrine-disrupting chemicals and obesity. And the fact is that many of the chemicals that we face in the environment have effect on the endocrine system. Certainly not all of them, but Tracy already uh, talked about that. So endocrine-disrupting chemicals, according to the Endocrine Society, to endocrinologists, are chemicals that disrupt the function of the endocrine system in some way. And that's an adverse outcome. This can be the wrong signal, the absence of a signal, the right signal, but at the wrong place and time. These can all cause total disruption of how our bodies function. How are we exposed? Well, we're exposed a lot. A lot through the diet, through the air, the water we drink. Sadly, we expose ourselves willingly. So there's lots of uh, exposure from personal care products and cleaning materials, as you've also heard. You've seen this slide, so one of the things we want to understand is what is it that's happening early in life that's predisposing our kids and our grandkids to become obese? And that's, that's a cute cartoon, but here's reality. We have lots and lots of fat kids in the U.S. And the problem is the kids who look like this very often grow up to become adults like this. And obesity is intractable. 83 to 87% of people who successfully lose a large amount of weight, right? They fight the good fight, and they, and they win, and they've lost the weight, and they feel terrific, gain it back. This is something that we need to figure out why that is. And one of the issues is that the endocrine system is involved. So you know that the endocrine system controls every aspect of, of diet and metabolism. The hedonic signals tell us when we're, we're, something looks good to eat, when we're hungry, when we're full. There's many, many levels at which the endocrine system affects weight gain and obesity. And if you disrupt it, you could expect to have an effect on obesity. And it turns out that a fair number of chemicals do. So we proposed about 15 years ago now what I call the obesogen hypothesis, and that 
according to me, obesogens are chemicals that stimulate the development of fat. And they do that either directly by fiddling with fat cells, by making more fat cells or more and bigger fat cells, by storing more fat in those cells, by disturbing the, the, the balance of, of fat cell birth and death. So fat cells live about 10 years in your body. What if your fat cells lived longer? That can affect whether you gain weight or not. Alter the control of appetite and satiety. Professor Lomero is going to talk about how it affects thermogenesis. So all of these factors can be involved in, in causing obesity. And we know today of about 50 chemical obesogens and a handful of pharmaceutical obesogens. You can see them in lots of places. Uh, this, this slide comes from a, a review by Vasantha Pataman. And you can see that there's just every aspect of your life is touched by obesogens. And as I noted before, we willingly expose ourselves to obesogens. Many, many kinds of personal care products are laden with obesogens, with phthalates, with bisphenols, with parabens. And we willingly put them right on our skin and they're absorbed and they have an effect. So here's our favorite obesogen. And this to us is a, is a, a model chemical because we understand a lot about how it works. It's tributyltin. It used to be used, painted on ship hulls to make marine life not grow there. It caused effects in mollusks. It's used today a lot as a stabilizer in vinyl plastics. So imagine how many vinyl plastics there are in your life. It's not intentionally put there. It's there as a contaminant of another organotin. It's used as a wood preservative. And if, you've, if we went around with a vacuum cleaner and vacuumed in this room or in any one of our houses, you will find organotins in the house dust. So there is exposure. So we showed quite a long time ago that tributyltin activates two hormone receptors that are very important for regulating the development of fat cells, RxR and PPR gamma, and that if we exposed mice prenatally that they would get fat later in life. We showed that some of this obesity had to do with reprogramming the fate of a class of stem cells in the body called mesenchymal stem cells. And these cells are the ones that give rise to fat and bone in the first place and that tributyltin could predispose those cells to make fat cells. More recently, we showed that the effects are heritable. And I'll show you just a little bit of this data, because I'm not allowed to show too many graphs. But that the effects of prenatal exposure to tributyltin lasted three or four generations later. And I won't show you any of these data, but that the fat cells that this obesogen tributyltin makes are dysfunctional fat cells, so they don't work normally. They don't respond to glucose signaling. They don't produce uh, a very important hormone called adiponectin. They don't have the ability to become thermogenic cells. So they're, the cells are there, they accumulate fat, but they don't respond to the body's normal signals. So that's additionally problematic. Okay, so the things that my lab works on these days is to try to understand how these obesogens function. So we want to know when we expose an animal to obesogens, what did we do to the tissues to make them function differently such that they accumulate more fat? And how is that propagated across the generations? Specifically, what we want to know is what did we do in the germline? Because if you, if you cause an effect across generations, it has to be transmitted through the sperm and the eggs. So how does that happen? What did we do? And of course, we want to know, uh, this is a meeting about exposome, and we're very interested in knowing who was exposed. Which of us in this room had an exposure to obesogens in our ancestry that might predispose us to have to try harder not to become obese? 
So here's the kind of experiment we do. We, we expose uh, mice throughout pregnancy. This is throughout pregnancy and lactation. And we carried that out four generations. So in the fourth generation, which is two generations removed from any exposure, we asked the question, how do these animals respond to diet? So what we did is we exposed them to a normal diet up until 19 weeks of age, and then we gave them a slightly higher fat diet. We didn't even double the fat. We went from 13% fat to 20% fat. So that's, by any standards, a low-fat diet, right? But it's, it, it's, it was an increase. We kept them on that diet for six weeks, and then we switched them back to see if they recovered. And what we saw was that neither the males nor the females gained weight over this period. There was no difference between the chemical group and the normal group, the control group. But when we looked at body composition, we saw a very different story. So if you look at the, the, the dotted line is the ancestral TBT exposure, and the solid line is the control. And you can see that at 19 weeks, the animals were already a little bit fatter, but that within one week of changing the diet, they became obese. And they continued to get obese, and they kept that weight on. So when we switched them back to the normal diet, they didn't lose that weight. So that's exactly the human situation, right? Easy to gain weight, hard to lose it. I eat the same diet as my friend, I gain weight, my friend doesn't. It also says that body weight is not an acceptable surrogate for obesity. So the literature is full of, of papers that say this chemical or this treatment didn't have an effect because my animals didn't weigh more. Well, you have to look at the fat. And this also shows that females didn't have the same response. So female mice got a little bit fatter, but that never was statistically significant, and it immediately went back to normal. So we've done a lot of studies that I don't have time to tell you about, but what we showed was that there were changes in gene expression that were caused by changes in the three-dimensional structure of DNA in the nucleus, and that that led to differential expression of important genes during development. And one of them is the satiety hormone, leptin. And what we showed is that we created animals that were leptin-resistant such that they didn't respond to the normal signals. So leptin was produced by the fat cells, but the animals didn't respond, and they became obese. So that's the, the, the bottom line of that story. So what does this all mean for human health? So I think you've already heard, and I think I want to reinforce that diet and exercise in and of themselves are insufficient to explain the obesity epidemic. We know that there are such things as obesogens that affect weight, and the best evidence, even if you don't believe a word I told you, is that there are pharmaceutical obesogens. There are drugs that we take that have the side effect of making us obese. Atypical antipsychotics, all kinds of antidepressants, um, many diabetes drugs make people obese. So why wouldn't chemicals that have the same targets have the same effect? That would be a completely unreasonable supposition. We know that prenatal exposure can reprogram exposed animals to be fat, and that this can be passed down the generation. And that's due to changes in the epigenome, the way genes are expressed. And at least the obesogen we work with causes this thrifty phenotype. And I love this slide. This guy says, damn you, epigenomes. His epigenome, the results of his lifetime exposures of all kinds, has interacted with his diet to make him obese, exactly like my mice. And I think that means that the existence of, a, of obesogen shifts the paradigm from treatment to prevention. We need to prevent kids from becoming obese if we want to solve this problem. And, of course, we know how to do that. 
we need to reduce exposure to obesogens, make sure kids get the proper nutrition, that they have enough exercise, that they live in environments that aren't conducive to gaining weight. Also, this is a slide I just found. I love this one. Do not disturb. The fetus in utero is fragile. It can be influenced by many factors. Let's not disturb them, and certainly not with obesogens. Lastly, I'll acknowledge the people who did this work. Raquel Chamorro Garcia led all these transgenerational studies. Basim Shukri did lots of really great work on the mesenchymal stem cells. NIEHS was visionary enough to fund us when no one else would. And I'll stop now and answer any questions you have and plug my book if you want to know more about it. About the stem, stem cell effect of tributyl 10, is that, I could see, is that, a, that was done in utero, does it work on adult stem cells also? Yes, those, those stem cells are present during development, but they're also present in your body and mine. So those are the ones that regenerate the fat tissue. So your fat cells turn over about every 10 years. So mesenchymal stem cells produce those. Is there any evidence that uh, there are um, geographical correlations associated with chemical exposure, obesity, and uh, county level geographic location, for example, around the Gulf Coast? Exactly, that's a very important question. And the answer is, we don't really know because no one is monitoring. The CDC monitors what I call Fred Flintstone chemicals. They can tell you every single, the concentration of every dioxin and every similar chemical, but no one is measuring these kinds of chemicals. But the ones that are measured, bisphenol A, PFOAs, you can see regional and, and population level changes in the distribution of those. Bruce, amazing work and amazing talk. And wow, I think our eyes are opened and they can never be shut now to this effect. Um, I, I know that uh, several years ago, uh, I was part of a panel at NIH, which was very rare, uncommon, and unusual causes of obesity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I represented stress, which people thought was minor. And there was, you know, and that was kind of the first story unfolding with your work with the obesogen effect. And really my question is, if you could, you know, we're so focused on calories and sugar and diet, if you could give us your best guess in humans, could these common exposures, starting from early in life, cause, you know, how many pounds difference? Could they really cause obesity syndrome? Or are we talking about someone carrying five pounds extra, you know, versus becoming a hundred, you know, becoming obese? Yeah. Right. So that's another very difficult question. So how many of the extra pounds that I have might be from obesogen exposure? So again, without knowing the exposure, it's hard to infer what, may, what might be the effect. But in the mice, for example, we gave the f pregnant females the kind of dose that we might be exposed to and then looked four generations later and saw a very large effect in all the animals, not some of them. So it could be profound. Um, do you have any favorite websites for fasting, different kinds of fasting, uh, juice fasting or water fasting for people that are overweight? And... Um, how much fruit do you think you should limit yourself a day in order to not have too much glucose? I mean, hmm. that, those might not be appropriate questions. Sure. That's what I thought of. Um, what I would say is I'm not a proponent of dieting. I don't think that, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is all diets work until you stop. So you, what you need to find is a lifestyle that you can maintain that, that works for you. And it, it will be different for you than it is for me, than it is for Martin. 
So you have to find what works for you and stick with it, and then you'll be successful. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.